check it, 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 choo choo. All aboard episode five of Wes and Conversations about the films of Wes Anderson, a proud member of the Smug Buds family of podcasts. Episode five is called The Darwilling Lizited. Because my name is Will. And my name is Liz, and we're your co-hosts, our goslings, and you're our goslings because you listen to us, and we explain everything to the geese. That's our tagline. That's right. It's still true. Even forget to this season. It. Yeah. <laughs> How are you, Liz? I am very good. I'm very tired today um, because I got I was drinking yesterday because I went to a Zoom wedding, mm-hmm. um, which didn't mean I had to drink, but no. I did. Sure. I had some dark and stormies i had some champagne <laughs> nice um yeah so i'm just like kind of tired today um but like in good spirits you know um i have off tomorrow which is a mm. a gift normally we don't have off the day that is tomorrow um is it uh i don't i don't recall why but i have a guess is is it what in some places is now considered Indigenous People's Day? It is, yes. Okay. And um, they gave it to us off special because of, like, coronavirus and how ah. how kind we've been because we've been very efficient. We haven't lost any productivity. Oh, wow. Kind of um, That kind of goes to show you something about something. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it goes to show that we don't have to go into the office right. is what it shows you, which yes. is basically what they've been saying. I mean, that said, the sort of um, the double-edged sword here is that, you know, our heating bills are going to be mm-hmm. more this winter. Our air conditioning bills were more than they normally will. Right. They, for some reason, wouldn't pay for me to have, like, my own mouse. <laughs> so I... I wasn't going to, I was so mad about this and my co-editor let me have her old mouse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, I don't also don't have a dedicated workspace. Mm-hmm. So like, it's not like they're paying me extra money to have a dedicated workspace. Yeah. So yes, should there be more flexibility for allowing people to work from home? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, would I also not like to have to pay for my the money that they spend on the brick and mortar experience because it's difficult. Yes. (laughs) Right. Understood. Um, but yeah, how are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, so, so we've dated it with the holiday. Um, but for people like me who don't remember necessarily when that holiday is coming up today is Sunday, uh, October, uh, 11th, 2020. Oh, also, it's my mom's birthday. Happy birthday, Margaret. Um, I have some old business. Okay. Old business. Okay, so the first thing is there's a new Ruth Beams album coming out soon. Yes. Um, did you see about this? Uh, I follow them on Facebook, so yes. Oh, that's nice. I didn't know that. Um, I think I started because you told me about that live show he was doing. Oh, yeah. And so I was like, okay, I want to get notifications about this. And now I see them uh, in my newsfeed sometimes. Yeah, I'm really stoked on it. The art, it looks really good. Um, Fennec Design is going to be printing shirts for them, um, which is um, the 
it used to be Justin who used to be the mandolin players um, printing company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think his brother, Sean, also has played on Roofbeam stuff, which is weird for me to think about. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited for it. Some of the songs I've heard um, both... I think he played one when I went to see him for my birthday last year. I mean, he just happened to be playing a show around my birthday time and I went. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I've heard some other than at the live streams and I still just like all of Nathan's songs, but nope. he wrote almost all these songs, I think with the exception of the like one that I know I heard like a year ago um, in quarantine. Yeah. So he's sort of just been like editing and doing stuff in quarantine. And he's also thinking about doing um, some pressings of old albums onto vinyl, Ooh. Um, which I would be very down for. Yeah, of course. So that's my first piece of old business. Very cool. My second piece are two very small things that I wanted to mention last week and I forgot about Life Aquatic. But they're not super important to the movie. They're just like interesting. Right. So they work out well here. Mm -hmm. It's not like I'm going to be like at 23 minutes into the film. Mm -hmm. Um, The the first is that um, in 2012, they discovered a new species species of cat shark, which they named the jaguar cat shark. After the Life Aquatic. That's cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And, and I guess it does have like black, blackish brown spots on the top. Hmm. Um, so I think it also sort of looks like the jaguar shark. The puppet. <laughs> the puppet. The fake one. Uh-huh. Um, and then the other thing which you know about but I did not tell our listeners mm-hmm. is that um, Blake went to a... Um, a music festival in Spain the year that Elliot had heart surgery, so 2017. And he saw Sue George play specifically the Life Aquatic music, um, which is incredible because, like, as I said, like, the dude is really prolific. He does a lot of other stuff. Um, like, an album come out in 2020. Yeah. Um, and he said that he came out, he was wearing his full costume. Wow. <laughs> And uh, the first time he told me about it, he said, you know, I went to go see it sort of on a whim because I saw that he was there and then ended up sitting there the whole time and just like really feeling some things as I was hearing him play these songs. (laughs) Yeah, certainly. And so you said it was around the time Elliot was having his heart surgery. So this would have been three, four years ago. Yeah. And... Uh, the the Life Aquatic came out in 2004. Is that right? Yeah. So the movie was already like 10 to 12 years old at that point. So yeah, yeah he could have been performing anything. It's, it's not like it, the movie was just out or something. Yeah. So that's incredible. And apparently, I think Blake also said like everyone who was, I mean, and granted this, I don't know what this music festival was, but it was huge. It was in Spain. Um, and Blake said that like pretty much everyone who was like there for that, what like seemed, seemed to know about it. You know what mm. I mean? Like seemed to know what they were there listening to. Uh-huh. Like it wasn't like, oh, I have to go, you know, I'm at this music festival. I need to fill time. Like I'll right. just go to this guy or something like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, I just think that's really like a nice thing and like a really random thing that Blake experienced. Cause he didn't yeah. go. Expressly I don't think he, for that. 
And I don't think he realized even that he was going to be doing that until like that day. Like, I think he was looking at the schedule and he was like, oh, shit. And yeah. then like. So, yeah, that's that's my those are my pieces of old business. Cool. Um, my bit of old business I've had for a couple of weeks now, and I uh, have not wanted to talk about it because I don't I because I don't want to admit that it's true. I don't want to give it power by vocalizing it. Oh, um, the uh, but the the old business I'm referring to is that Adult Swim canceled the Venture Brothers. Oh well. But I mean, yeah, I I mean I I I I I I think I'm not taking it too hard. It's very disappointing. Hmm. But part of me is thinking, I I I I still believe that this is not the end. Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll take a different form. You know, maybe the form will be inferior. Maybe. It'll only be a comic book rather than ever being new episodes of the show. Um, maybe there will be, um, you know, direct to Netflix movie or maybe Hulu will pick up the show and there will be a new season. <clears throat> maybe it'll just be puppets. Maybe it'll be a puppet show um, that'll go on tour around the world. It'll just be a podcast. <laughs> maybe it'll be a podcast. Sure. I mean, the two guys who write it do many of the voices. so Yeah, they, yeah. so they could very easily... Um, and if if PFT's on there now, he you know he knows how to record himself talking. And I think that they're friends with the um, uh, Thrilling Adventure Hour uh, people. So you know they, that's, they that, have to be. That, yeah. I'm sure they've done stuff with them before, and they uh, that's like a radio drama, you know, in the tradition yeah. of radio drama. So maybe it'll be a radio drama. Um, and also at the same time, I accept that like they they knew the risk that they were taking for like repeatedly taking for like 15 years mm-hmm. writing a show that was so serialized and always ended a season on a cliffhanger mm-hmm. um that like they they had they had 15 years to like r- if not wrap it up then at least write it in such a way where if it didn't we come back that would be yeah, yeah okay um, and they just did over and over again, didn't do that. And so, so it's like, okay, I, they knew what they were doing. I, as the viewer sort of knew what I was getting into. So, um, I, I, I can't be too crushingly disappointed because it's, it's not that surprising, but we don't do a podcast about certain television shows that we like anymore. Not this season anyway. We do a podcast about Wes Anderson movies, mm-hmm. and this episode is about the Darjeeling Limited, a movie from 2007. Yes. When have you seen this movie? What is your history and relationship to it? Liz Morris so, Lakes. So I saw this movie at some point in college, mm-hmm. which makes sense because it came out in 2007, so... I couldn't have seen it before then. You were 18. Um, Yeah, I saw it. I didn't see it in theaters. And I saw it and I liked it. And then I think I've seen it one other time. Um, And then I watched it like last month. And then I watched it approximately um, four hours ago. Cool. Very good. (laughs) And I will say that I don't know if it's just because I'm tired. But like I was like just crying the whole time. Mm. for like the last like third of the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. I just was like actively crying. And I know that's common for me, but like 
I just didn't stop. I just didn't stop crying. Mm-hmm. And Elliot was like eating, sitting where I'm actually sitting right now and like eating his lunch and just kept like being like, you okay, mama? Why are you sad? And I was like, I'm just fine. I'm just watching something. Yeah. Uh, poor Elliot. Sounds like he's <laughs> been put in that position many times in his very Too young many. life. <laughs> uh, I have a real soft spot for this movie. And um, that is partially because uh, I did see it in the theater. And it's the first one of these movies uh, that I saw in the theater. I would have been 17 years old. Uh, I don't remember exactly where I saw it, but if I had to guess, I would think it might have been the Malvern Cinema in Malvern, New York. Uh, And uh, I am sure that I was there with my parents um, or possibly just my dad, but I think it was the three of us. Mm -hmm. And uh, this movie had a relatively minor uh theatrical run and i mean when i say relatively i mean relative to you know previous couple of movies of his um so uh it's possible that maybe uh i wouldn't have seen this if i hadn't grown up in new york city or at least it would have been less likely Mm-hmm. But um, I don't remember uh, having a relationship to Wes Anderson and his films prior to seeing this. It's possible even maybe this is the first one I saw, period, rather than just saw in the wow. theater. But yeah. I don't know necessarily that that's true. There's mm-hmm. there's a, also a possibility that I had already seen Rushmore but you just uh, didn't connect it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's all it's all sort of hazy in my memory because it was not like an instant, you know, lightning strike. Like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll always remember. You know, you remember the first time you saw Life Aquatic, and that was the first few times, right? Yeah. And that was your entry point, and you have that clear narrative. Mm-hmm. The 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 clearest narrative I can impose on this is like, I'm sure I saw this in the theater. And every Wes Anderson movie since then I've seen in the theater. And then and the rest was just catching up on what came before uh, the Darjeeling Limited. Uh, I think this movie is really good. And I like it very much. I do too. Yeah. Um, do you have a place you want to start? or I do actually yeah. have like a really specific way I want to start because cool. I'm glad I, I think asked. you'll appreciate this or you'll hate it. It's one of the <laughs> uh, you can never tell. Let me let me put it let me put it this way. Sometimes I have a thought about something and this is in general. Mm-hmm. And I have a like a, a plan or an idea or an opinion mm-hmm. and I know will is either going to be, very on board with what I'm saying Uh or he's going to fully reject it. (laughs) Yeah, those are the two possibilities. It's a real... No, because there could be a middle place. (laughs) No, I mean with me. (laughs) (laughs) So this this is the way I want to start because I love the way this movie starts because it feels very... Thank you. Meta to me. Thank you. Thank you for bringing it to this. We we are... Okay, so Will agrees. We are not only on board the same train, we are sharing a (laughs) compartment... You're on the top bunk. No, actually, you would be on the bottom, I guess. I would have yeah. to be on the top. Because I have a bad ankle. That's right. Yes. And a bad, a bad knee. 
Um, so okay, I don't wait, mind so climbing me... a ladder. So so I'll be on the top. We're, we're sharing bunk beds in the same compartment. We, yeah. we have, this is the number one thing we have to talk about. So Bill Murray's been in Rushmore. Mm-hmm. He wasn't in Bottle Rocket, but, you know, fuck that movie for now. <laughs> He's been in Rushmore. He's been in Rushmore. He's been in the, the Royal Tenenbaums. Yep. <laughs> and then he was Steve Zissou. the titular yep. Steve Zissou in The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. That's right. And so the movie starts. Mm-hmm. There's a ch- almost it feels like a chase, yes. but it's not a chase. It feels like the beginning of a Bond movie. It's frantic. Um, oh, wow. B- b- bringing it back to the Bond movie comment from last week. <laughs> Maybe this one feels more like a Bond movie than The Life Aquatic. <laughs> at least at the beginning. He gets to the train station. He has one line, which is, that's my train. Yep. He's running. We get the slow-mo. Mm-hmm. He's running. And all of a sudden, who shows up? Whose face appears from behind Bill Murray? Yep. But Adrian Brody. Yep. I want to talk so much about Adrian Brody in this movie. Yeah. And... Bill Murray falls behind Mm -hmm. and Adrian Brody boards the Darjeeling Limited. And it's as if they have passed a baton. Yes, exactly. It feels like a baton relay. It is. Is that actually what his intention was? Because I just it has to It 100% (laughs) has to be. I mean, like, but but here's the thing. You are 100% right. And I would like to add. That also, in my reading, I think that there is something a little bit more sinister going on than a baton passing. Because a baton passing implies, you know, consent and a, and a kind of generational, like, here you Did go. You like a bait and switch? It is sort of a bait and switch. And it's kind of a fuck you to Bill Murray because, <laughs> because the last movie failed. Yeah. And yeah. so it's like... The, Bill Murray, who has been Wes Anderson's guy for the he past like three movies, pocket. yeah, yeah, um, he literally can't catch the train that is this movie, and and so like, and he and he's an old man, and in the credits he's just called the businessman, yeah, which is like, I'm just putting this together actually right now. Uh, everything I've said up to this point, I was totally prepared to talk about. Yeah. Now I'm adding on to it in the moment. The fact that he's the businessman is kind of kind of has something to do with the financial failure of the life aquatic. It's it, <laughs> yeah. th- like that. Uh, we're going to talk about budgets again and where this fits in to yeah. like the arc of his career. Not Bill Murray's, but Wes Anderson's. <laughs> But um, the the fact is, not only are the train and the movie both called the Darjeeling Limited, but we are we are introduced to the title, like the title card, quote unquote. There is no title card, but the substitute for the title card is a shot that shows us the words "the Darjeeling Limited" on the back of the train. And we understand that's supposed to be us seeing the title of the movie at the beginning of the movie. But literally what it is, is it's on the train that they're trying to catch. And so literally, Bill Murray cannot make it onto this movie. And yes. and and the reason it is a baton passing is because 
Adrian Brody, who is new to the ensemble, who has never been in one of these movies before. It's not Owen Wilson who chases after the train. And it's not Jason Schwartzman who chases after the train. It's totally not a coincidence that it is Adrian Brody who surpasses Bill Murray Mm -hmm. in order to catch the train and therefore be in the movie. Yes, absolutely. And that and that is so much fun. And it is very fun to connect those dots. I said I made a comment last week about how when you're an amateur uh, film fan or like an armchair cinephile, the easiest dots to connect are the the cast, the people who are mm-hmm. in each movie. And so this is like a fun dot connecting exercise where it's like anyone who's seen, uh, you know, Rushmore and Life Aquatic, you know, could could connect these dots that Mm -hmm. Bill Murray's the old guard. He's been here. We've seen him before. And Adrian Brody is not. Um, And besides that, it it it. It puts me in the mindset of this is not just an isolated incident. It it puts me in the mindset of like, this is not only just a fun way to start your movie. It's also like, okay, it's sort of an invitation to, to read the whole thing through the meta lens that I so love to bring to these conversations. Yes, absolutely. Can I mention something not plot related? Please. I've been working on this line all day. Are you ready? Yeah. This movie includes not only an absent mother, but is also absent of Mark Mothersbaugh. Yes. You brought, yes, good, good line. And thank (laughs) you for bringing it back to that, because this is a dangling thread that I felt we needed to sort of tie up. Because thanks to you, mostly, we've been talking about Mark Mothersbaugh in each of these episodes. Which is a funny thing, I think, as a note, because that seems like it would be the thing you would talk about. Yes, right. (laughs) Somebody behind the scenes most people probably don't know about. Um, You mentioned in a previous episode uh, that the Jarjeeling Limited would be the first one of these movies that Mark Mothersbaugh does not work on. Yeah. And at the time... When you mentioned that, I thought, oh, that's interesting. Perhaps they needed to bring in someone different to, you know, uh, give the music, you know, an authentic uh, Indian quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, rewatching the movie, watching interviews with Russ Anderson and reading the trivia for this movie, I realized, oh, the reason there's no Mark Mothersbaugh, it, do you know what I'm going to say? It's not scored. It, there is no original score yes, to this movie. I mean, yeah. It is it, it is scored only by the needle drops mm-hmm. and score that was written for other films, mm-hmm. specifically Indian films. Yes. Specifically the films of a filmmaker whose name I should have practiced saying <laughs> prior to this. So I'm going to say it wrong. Sorry. Sajanit Ray. That sounds good. Uh, his last name is definitely Ray, <laughs> which is which is easy for me as a as a, an uncultured white person. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and uh, Wes Anderson uh, spoke in a lot of interviews about uh, watching a lot of Indian films uh, uh, at this time, particularly Ray's films. And Ray not only uh, wrote and directed many, many films in his life, but also scored the films himself. Mm-hmm. And so the the compositions are not only from Ray's films, but they are his uh, raised compositions. compositions. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I did not we, know that part. It's a cool, it's a cool way to score a movie. And it also kind of brings, because they are, they were already from other films. Mm-hmm. It sort of brings more of a, you know, as long as there's an homage, as long as it's, you know, filmmakers honoring other filmmakers, that also, again, opens a window into like, okay, there's something meta going on yeah. here. What do you want to talk about? I have I have things, but so so let's. I I would like to set the table, please, by just reviewing where we've been uh, from a filmmaker's career perspective. Okay. Um, Bottle Rocket uh, was uh, not an indie film. Really, mm-hmm. seems like one, but it was a, a Columbia Picture, right? Mm-hmm. Because of the. Uh, festival success of, of the short film. Um, and then uh, Ball Rocket uh, didn't do very well, but mm-hmm. it was uh, seen and liked by the right people and important people. And so uh, Disney uh, sweeps up Wes Anderson mm-hmm. and Rushmore is a touchstone picture. Mm-hmm. Royal Tannenbaums is a touchstone picture. Mm-hmm. The Life Aquatic is a touchstone picture. Mm-hmm. The Darjeeling Limited is a Fox Searchlight picture. Ah. Did you notice this? No. Yeah. So, so. No, why would I notice this? this clear, is for you to notice, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Clearly, there were some ramifications for the Life Aquatic. Cle- mm-hmm. Clearly, there was some fallout for that movie going under under budget and uh, I mean over budget and mm-hmm. underperforming. Uh, at the box office. And so uh, uh, if, if you know, I, I talked about we've got nine movies to review, so it's a trilogy of trilogies. And if the first trilogy was like a buildup, mm-hmm. you know, the ramping up of a roller coaster. Yeah. Life Aquatic was going over the cliff. Yes. <laughs> yeah, sure. And the Darjeeling Limited is sort of plateauing or I would call it like an attempt at recovery. Mm-hmm. And I would say a successful attempt. At yeah, recovery. a bunny hill. A bunny hill. And and it is, to me, a, a very interesting, and again, I'll use the word successful, blend of, on the one hand, back to basics. We don't have $55.0 million. We have more like fifteen one five. Mm-hmm million dollars um and uh they they talk in interviews about how the actors had no trailers they did their own makeup for the movie they lived in a house together they they did it in some ways like a student film mm-hmm. back back to basics compared to life aquatic mm-hmm. um but also at the same time they didn't have an onset masseuse uh, right. Who, you know, you're you're you, referring to Kate Blanchett's stand-in. 
Yes. Uh, yes. This but was she part. Was Kate Blanchett standing second after. Yes. Yeah. Right. They convinced her. This was part of the intern journal, right? Yeah. yeah. Um. The on the other hand, uh, as opposed to Back to Basics, but also in concert with Back to Basics, mm-hmm. you have things being done that couldn't be done if this were, you know, the first film yes. for, for upstart Wes Anderson. You have actually going to India mm-hmm. and actually... They're not uh, in Texas. <laughs> they're not in Texas. And they are actually on a real moving train, mm-hmm. which is not... <laughs> not not a giant cross-section right. of it's, a boat. It's not quite as insane... As making a movie on boats and building that cross-section set. But it is more ambitious than, you know, just filming on sound stages, which is the other way that this movie could have been made. Mm -hmm. So it's a really it's a really interesting sort of center of the Venn diagram middle ground Mm -hmm. between one place that we've been and another place that we've more recently been. Yeah, that's that's my sort of context of what what I think makes this movie interesting in the in the arc that we're that we're tracking. Yeah, I also there's a couple of other conceptual things I want to talk about with this movie, one of which is that um, I realized in this movie and I don't know why it took me this long, maybe because it's such a common trope in movies that maybe it's not worth even talking about. Mm. Um, or maybe I'm just thinking of like Disney movies, which is that we have another like dead parent movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Bottle Rocket, we don't really know about their parents, but you know Rushmore, Jason Schwar- Jason Schwartzman's uh, mother is dead. Royal Tenenbaums, of course, Royal dies by the end, and hypothetically Owen Wilson's parents are dead. Mm-hmm. They're absent for sure. Yeah, because he lives with his aunt. And then in the Life Aquatic, um, Owen Wilson's mother has died. And then he's trying to find his absent father. And here we get, if you want to talk about meta, the opposite of that, right? Their father is dead and they have an absent mother. Yeah. And so they're, the whole movie is about them searching for something, right? Right. And, you know, the question of whether or not they find it is maybe up for debate. But, yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about like, do you think that that's boring to talk about? Like, do we have to have dead parents to have a plot line in do, movies? Sorry, do do I think that it's boring to talk about? Like, for us doing this podcast, uh, 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 where we where we talk, or or do do I think that it's boring to talk about from like a like a storytelling level? Like, is it boring that he keeps going to this well over and over again? I guess what? it's. I guess both. I guess I'm asking both. Like. Mm-hmm. Is it just so common that it's not even worth to talk about anymore? I think, uh, hmm, let me let me think about that. I, I guess um, my gut reaction is to say that from a storyteller's perspective, I think that that's such a rich area. Yeah, for sure. Um, and and we we all have some sort of conscious or semi-conscious or unconscious or combination thereof um, obsession with that relate that you know 
you know, first, you know, the first relationship, right, mm -hmm. that you have and uh, the, the, the sort of, I, I, I think, I think I will never get bored of stories that I can read and go about like, oh, this is how, this is about how like trauma is inherited or like, yeah. this is about how, um, like, you know, uh, personalities or, or, uh, uh, you know, not quirks, but, but, you know, the, the, uh, flaws, how, yeah. how, how flaws, uh, uh, you know, they, they grow out of, you know, childhood and adolescence and environment and that environment is, is mostly rooted in, you know, relationship with whoever raised you. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in, in terms of talking about, or talking about it in like an analytical way, I can see how that would be more boring because it's like, it's sort of something that you feel like yeah. it's something, it's something that, that when I watch a movie like this, you know, I, I feel it. Mm-hmm uh in their you know i feel the way that they are in their in the aftermath of their father's death and i feel the way that they are seeking their mother who they feel abandoned by mm -hmm. um but to to talk about those things it's like that's not that's not the foremost thing i'm i'm interested in talking about because what is what is there to say except that's what's going on with these characters and it 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 is a, a a story we all we're all familiar with i guess the reason it feels both like the most legitimate storytelling device and also the biggest cop-out is that like all of our parents are gonna die yeah <laughs> maybe we'll die before them and that's like a different story Maybe we'll just stop talking to them, and that's a different story. Maybe we'll never know our parents, and that's a death of a sort. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just wanted to bring that up, because I feel like I really particularly noticed it in this one. Um, right. And then was like, wait a second. Yeah, I, I think the the perhaps the repetition hit a point where, you know, this this subject could no longer be ignored. It's like yeah. okay, we've had enough variations on the same concept mm -hmm. that it's like okay, we have to we have to call attention to the fact that this is happening in one way or another over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I don't I don't think that that's a fault. I don't think that it's lazy I don't think, I don't think necessarily. It is um uh i i think that it is one thing that what i watched a lot of youtube inter clips of interviews uh, uh from the time of this movie mm -hmm. and a lot of things were repeated over and over again and became sort of boring and and one thing that was repeated a lot was we wanted to make a movie that was really really personal they say they say at one point almost too personal perhaps and when i say yeah. they they i mean not only wes anderson but also jason schwartzman and um i think perhaps um it is uh yeah if you 
like it 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 makes sense to me that if you want to write a personal story mm-hmm. and make your movie feel personal in that way, meaningful in that personal way, the the first thing your your instincts would just drive you to write in one way or another about that parent-child yeah. relationship. And it's not as much of a story if, you know, it's a happy relationship where, mm-hmm. you know, all parties were always there and supporting one another. Yeah, that makes sense. May I use that as a transition to talk about the writing of this movie Please. and what it's about? Yes. So also, and here's another quick recap of where we've been. Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and Royal Tenenbaums were all written by Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson. Mm-hmm. Then The Life Aquatic was written by Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach. Mm-hmm. The Darjeeling Limited was written by, do you know? No. Wes Anderson and Jason Schwartzman and Roman Coppola. Wow. Okay. So, so we we talked when we talked about Rushmore, we talked about introducing Jason Schwartzman to the scene, and we talked about the fact that uh, he is a, a Coppola, and he's yes. related to Francis Ford Coppola, Sofia Coppola, Nicolas Cage, etc. So Roman Coppola is a, a cousin of his. This is a movie about three brothers, and it is a, a movie written by three friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and they uh, like to talk about how uh, it's it's personal to their experience, um, their their own families and their own siblings. Um, they wrote this movie together, and they wrote it for. It was another thing Wes uh, mentions in interviews is um, this the script writing stage takes a long time for him generally. And there are years in between his movies. He's not making a movie a year. Mm-hmm. He's movi- making a movie like every three or four years. Mm-hmm. And he gestates on scripts quite a lot. And so this movie was written for a while between the three of them before they ever went to India. Yeah. And then before they were done writing it, they, the three of them, they went to India they traveled by train. Oh, good. They just explored, not knowing entirely what they were going to find. Mm-hmm. It was kind of part location scouting for the film. Yeah. But it was also to finish the script. And they talk about how they sort of wanted to live the story themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was how they managed to, to finish writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what comes out of that is uh this so so i i watched too many interviews because now now i'm i'm purely just repeating over and over again he said this he said that Mm -hmm. in an interview but he did obviously the the question that always gets asked is why did you make this movie and his answer is i wanted to make a movie in india because he fell in love with these indian films Mm -hmm. i wanted to make a movie about brothers Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make a movie on a train. <laughs> and this combined all of those things. Yeah, it does. And so uh, what we get is this uh, uh, ensemble of three lead characters mm-hmm. um, who really have 
control of like the whole movie. By control, I mean like focus. I mean they hold yes, focus of like, like the entire it's movie. It's not a Tenenbaums. It's no. not a Life Aquatic even. It's the three of them. And then secondarily, Angelica Houston shows up mm-hmm. significantly, but it's only a short portion of the Very film. Very brief, yeah. And then you have Rita mm-hmm. and to a lesser extent, a character who I think is called the Chief Steward. Mm-hmm. And then the rest is all basically background. And the chief steward is played by um, Waris Aluwalia, who played Vikram in The Life Aquatic. Right. We've seen him before. That's right. Mm -hmm. So. And Kumar's in this movie, as a side note. Yes. Kumar watch. Do, 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 (laughs) do. But like in the smallest, like he doesn't have. He's like, when I say he's in this movie, I mean like he's physically there. Yes. He does not have any lines. It's not a speaking role. In the credits, his character is called Old Man. Yes. Um, So uh, this movie is about these three brothers who uh, travel by train through India because uh, the oldest brother, uh, Owen Wilson, plays... Francis. Yes. The middle brother is Peter, played by Adrian Brody. Mm -hmm. And the youngest brother is Jack, played by Mm -hmm. Jason Schwartzman. And uh, they haven't uh, seen or really spoken to each other in a year. And a year ago was when their father died and his funeral. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jason, uh, not Jason Schwartzman, Owen Wilson, Francis... Uh, reunites them by planning this trip through India. Mm -hmm. The point being that they are Americans. They're Mm -hmm. they're white. They're presumably from New York City. Yes. Uh, And uh, why India? Because he wants them to bond Mm -hmm. and become brothers again by way of a spiritual journey. Yes. Through a foreign land. And and I want to say, oh, it's raining. That's not what I wanted to say. It was just surprising. <laughs> um, I want to say, too, that I think that there's something really interesting with these brothers about each of their personalities, mm-hmm. which is that they all seem to be successful mm. in their own way. That's um, interesting. So Owen Wilson seems to be a very successful businessman. Sure. Because he has these very expensive things and seems to have um, Brendan, who he's hired, is wearing like a um, embroidered hat and polo. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think it doesn't feel like in other movies that we've seen where, you know, we've talked about the trope of running out of money. Yes. That never seems to be an actual threat here. It seems like he just actually is financially stable and is a successful businessman. Yes. Yes. Jack is a successful writer, um, mm-hmm. at least in the sense that he has a book out. Yeah. Um, and Peter, it's like more, it seems ambiguous as to what Peter does, but mm-hmm. Peter is successful at, he has a wife. <laughs> Who is going to have a baby. He he has successfully, you know, maintained a relationship with a person, which I, I really do count as being successful. He seems yeah. to be the most emotionally stable of them even Mm -hmm. if he's also the most he also feels the most actively 
fucked up by this, which yeah. is maybe me just having a preference to him in this movie. But um, mm-hmm. he seems to be the most sort of like person that has been able to be the most even. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's really interesting just I, I say that because so many of these characters that we see in Wes Anderson movies are flawed, but also they're sort of like fuck ups a lot of the time. Yeah. Or like they were successful and then they fucked up and they haven't been able to get back on their feet. Right. And these characters I don't think are that. Yes. I think these characters are grieving and so they're right. weird. They're all acting weird. <laughs> yes. They're they but are, I don't they're I don't traumatized, think they're in... but their their lives aren't in shambles. Yes, exactly. They're just emotionally on on the brink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Th- I'm I'm glad you brought that up. That is very interesting in in comparison to what we've seen before. Um, you uh, have clearly glommed on to Adrian Brody and his character and his performance in this movie. Do you want to? I assume is that your favorite performance in the film? Yeah, it is. Do you want to talk about why? So, yeah, I just, I think we talked a little bit, and I haven't been able to listen to our <laughs> longest episode ever yet, but, um, so I was busy going to a Zoom wedding, but um, I think a nice place that I, a point that I wanted to bring up and a place that we were en- able to end on for the Life Aquatic is that I said, I feel like very often the things that I end up liking the most with Wes Anderson are the things that other people maybe don't. I'm not saying people don't like dislike adrian brody i'm just saying that like adrian brody is sort of this wild card in this movie compared to everyone else right um he's because he doesn't show up again we don't have a history with him yeah um he's not jason schwarzman who like was grew up with wes anderson you know so anytime he shows up it doesn't even if he shows if he only showed up one other time it would still be meaningful right but i feel like his character, I like that he's really skinny mm-hmm. and has long legs and then wears shorts. I have a real weakness for really tall, skinny men in shorts. Yeah. Because they always look awkward, but in like a really cute way. Mm-hmm. Um, I just like his interactions with everyone else. Um, I feel like he's doing the Wes Anderson deadpan, but like in his own voice. I mean, yes. which makes it his body. So, of course, it's going to be his own voice. Right. I think his facial expressions and the way that he has to maneuver his body. And we'll talk more about this soon because it's something I want to talk about. But like part of this movie is they're just touching each other constantly because they're Mm -hmm. in these really small spaces. Yeah. But part of it is like also metaphorically like that everybody is in like a very small compartment in their lives. And what's happening on this movie, like literally is that these small compartments have now merged and Uh, these brothers are in this compartment again for the first time. Yes. Um, and so Adrian Brody is, is he taller than Owen Wilson? I can't tell if he is. It's only by a little bit. Jason mm-hmm. Schwartzman, of course, is short, a short little shorty. Right. But, um. Not to mention the fact that Jason Schwartzman, the shortest of the three of them, is also the one who is always barefoot in the movie. <laughs> yes. Only yes. making him seem shorter. Yes. And which I just, it must have been, I mean, shooting this movie must have been a feat in and of itself, just with the small Uh, spaces they were in. (laughs) uh, But, but on top of that, the fact that like the height difference must have been a, anyway. So yeah, I just feel like the way that Adrian Brody physically moves his 
body mm-hmm. is really interesting because yeah. he's like feels like he's sort of like arranging it into all these spaces more specifically than Owen Wilson does, even yeah. if they're similar sizes. Mm-hmm. And then I, I just, I don't know why, but I just, I really, I don't want to say connected. That makes it sound like I'm in a book club. I, I, <laughs> I really, I really like. Just like emotionally, re- it, he resonated with me the most. Like he just mm-hmm. seemed so sad. Yes. <laughs> he seemed so sad, but it really felt genuine. It didn't feel, even with his quirk where he was like stealing things constantly or he'd get the belt and just put it directly onto his body, not into his belt loops. Yes, very funny. <laughs> All of those things just felt so genuine to me. Yeah. Like the fact that he's he has his father's glasses just on his head at all times, that he's carrying the keys to the Porsche when the Porsche doesn't even work and they're not in the same country. Right. Um, that sort of like because we know that Wes Anderson likes tokens too, but that sort of like having these tokens, um, and just he like I think also too at one point he's reading the the short story that Jack wrote which is hilariously three small pages long did you notice yes. that yeah <laughs> because when he says can i read you this short story and owen wilson and francis is like is it long i'm like dude you're looking at it it's me it's i probably a flash piece like could be very prob- small type you don't know you don't know how <laughs> no, small that font the, is we see I, know, the type. I know <laughs> i know i just mean when it's being introduced <laughs> right also just um, by the by the way I, yeah. For the first time, sorry, I'm interrupting you. You're I, fine. I don't mean to do that, but uh, for the first time, I, I in in for years, I've had the understanding that like Wes Anderson is so meticulous, and and his movies have all these visual tableaus, and everything is mm-hmm. just so. And for the first time in that dining car scene, I had the thought, oh my gosh, these movies must be continuity nightmares. <laughs> And the reason I had that thought is because there is, I think, a noticeable continuity error where from some angles, you know, Adrian Brody reads the story and he's always like holding it up, like yeah. basically just so that like it's below his face from from our, you know, the camera's mm-hmm. point of view. And it at from some angles, he's holding it and he's turned a page and you yes. can tell because the corner... You yes. know, is creased and from yeah, other it's like angles stapled. and from other I think it's a paper clip. Yeah. From other angles, uh he's still on the first page and it's and it, uh-huh. it has that neat corner and it goes and it goes back and forth when it's like clearly not supposed to. Yeah, that makes sense. Um and then just to bring it back to um what you were saying about Adrian Brody, I would say another way to phrase what I hear you saying is that Peter, as played by Adrian Brody, feels like a really fully realized character. Yes. Like just a like a masterful performance of like this is it is it's really considered, mm-hmm. you know, how this guy moves, you know, what he what he thinks, um, what you know, what his valuables are, how he speaks, etc. I totally agree with you. Um, Wait, I have one more thing and, that I And then say. you conclude and then I will say <laughs> my thing. So when he's, um, when he has that story and he takes it to the bathroom or wherever and he's reading it, mm-hmm. he like actually is crying. Yes. 
Um, which I bring up because characters in Wes Anderson movies cry sometimes, but not that often. Uh-huh. And like like Jane Winslet Richardson cries in The Life Aquatic a lot, but every time she cries, it's mostly Kate Blanchett just going, oh, and like turning her face away from yeah. the can- camera. Right. And like Adrian Brody is like full in the face. I don't know if he's actually producing those tears through his own brain and body or if they did mm-hmm. something to make his eyes water, which is fine too. But like the character is crying. And then also the one other thing I want to bring up about him is he has a character. He has a line. His character has a line that's very similar to Steve Zissou, mm-hmm. where Steve Zissou says, um, I always hated fathers and I never wanted to be one. Mm-hmm. And at one point, Peter says, I always assumed I was going to get divorced. So children were never really in the picture. Right. And so I feel like I just, with him especially, it's not just, which is not to downplay the other character's grief, but like, I feel like his character specifically um, is not just grieving in a way that feels very pure, but is mm-hmm. also having this existential crisis because he didn't think his relationship would be successful. Yeah. And yet here it is, his wife still wants to be with him. You know, she's still seen, she's mad that he's gone, but she doesn't seem like she wants to break up. Right. And he's now going to have to be this father when knowing that his father is dead and he's still grieving his own father. Right. And that's, and also he's so handsome. Will he's very good to look at. And it's like, we'll talk about costumes, but he really well wears that suit really well. Mm -hmm. It like fits his body really nicely. Yeah. Those are my thoughts about Adrian Brody. You're absolutely (laughs) right. And, and on some level, I, I have to just like admit that your opinion is the correct one. <laughs> Even though I myself in my gut, not with yeah. my brain, yes. have a different favorite performance. And that's totally fine. My favorite performance in this movie is Owen Wilson's. I thought you were going to say Bill Murray. <laughs> no, actually, my, actually mine that. is Natalie Portman. <laughs> she nails that one shot. That drink. Yes. Ooh. Um, no, it's, it's Owen Wilson. And, and part of the reason why is because this is a return to form Mm -hmm. and it restores my faith in Owen Wilson. Yeah. Because as I said last week, I don't think that he is best served, uh, as a character actor. I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't think that it serves him well to have him play Ned Plimpton from Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that is uh, distracting. Uh, it, this is Owen Wilson uh, playing a part that was written well mm-hmm. and suitably and fittingly for yes. Owen Wilson. Yes. And the character is a, a lovable buffoon. Um, yeah. As basically all the three of them are. Yes. But but basically he has to be the most buffoonish because he is the one forcing them into the situation. And, yeah. and uh, he's the one, you know, pulling the strings sort of. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the, the movie is like all these movies, it's to some extent a comedy. And, and we understand that there is there is something silly about what he's doing and the way he's going about it right mm-hmm. the whole the whole concept from the start is silly 
Yes. And then on top of that, it's made obviously ridiculous by the itineraries and the lamination of the itineraries and the, you know, Brendan being there. Uh, and when he says, you'll never see Brendan. And, and in, we, in fact, we've already seen him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, and then we see him over and over. Uh, and uh, so I, I think that it would be a challenge yeah. to to play this character who done poorly would not be lovable mm-hmm. and would would be uh, pretty annoying. Mm-hmm. And if we just um, thought that his idea was stupid and that's the end of it, then that would be the end of the movie like from the audience perspective like we would want this whole thing to end Mm -hmm. um if if we didn't um on some level want to see uh owen wilson succeed in his quest to to you know reunite his family and and bring Mm -hmm. them all together and and have that enriching experience um and i just think that owen wilson is really funny in this movie doing the comedy beats but also at the same time um he's he's very sympathetic Mm -hmm. um and and human uh and uh also he also has the added challenge of he has to act through having all that stuff all over his face. Oh, I know, which just must have been so obnoxious. Right. And and not to mention also uh, use, using a cane. Yes. And there's a funny moment um, where... I Here's something I've noticed. I've been watching as much behind-the-scenes stuff as I can find on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I couldn't help but notice that um, for as much as Owen Wilson has been in these movies, I hardly see him, like being interviewed and in mm-hmm. the in the making of stuff mm-hmm. um and and there's this one moment in the making of the darjeeling limited mini doc where uh he, uh uh owen wilson is saying to some maybe some crew people yeah yeah i, I put this in my shoe you know to uh, uh give myself um a limp um it's a uh, and he's holding it up. He, it's a small lime, and there's a close-up <laughs> of it, and it's like a almost perfectly spherical, like small lime. And he's saying, "I put this in my shoe, you know, so that I I walk like how, how I'm supposed to." Uh, but it it you know, it's really uncomfortable. And then he says, "Maybe I should just try acting." <laughs> Very, oh, that's very good. Very funny thing to say. I don't. I don't know how much he kept the. I've, I'd be very curious to know how to what extent he actually kept the lime in his shoe, and whether that was just a day <laughs> or whether that was the whole shoot or what. I but, like Owen Wilson's character a lot too because, um, he's not just being a leader; he's being a caretaker. Mm-hmm. Which is brought up very early, but very quietly. The sort of thing that I think I did miss until this watching. Mm-hmm. Um, which is that he says, like, did I raise us yeah. to them? Right. Which makes you wonder how much their father really was around. Yeah. 
and we know that their mother was absent. Mm-hmm. But also, like, on top of this, he has all these weird quirks that they keep. I mean, they all have weird quirks, right? Because that's part of what they're grieving. But, like, he has these things where he keeps, like, ordering food for them. And he'll mm-hmm. say, like, who wants soup? Raise your hand. Yes. And then there's the reveal when we do finally get to Patricia, yep. to Angelica Houston, that she speaks to them exactly the same way. Yep. And it kind of fucking destroyed. That's part of why I was crying so yeah. so much this time. Because mm-hmm. it's like, not only is he trying to be a caretaker, but he's modeling himself after his mother who was like barely there to begin with. So it's like he right. really has these like sort of bare bones set of... Um, Tools. Like, tools that he can use to try to take care of his brothers. Yeah. And I know we don't know how old the characters are in the movie, I don't think. But they are, if we're looking at the actual actors, like, Owen Wilson today mm-hmm. is 51, Adrian Brody's 47, and um, Jason Schwartzman's 41 mm-hmm. or 40. And so he really would have been the oldest, right? you know? Yeah, and they, as far as I can remember, they don't come out and say that, mm-hmm. but you infer. And yes. I was kind of thinking to myself, like, okay, I I bet it's safe to assume Jason Schwartzman is the baby. And I was kind of thinking to myself, oh, okay, well, is Adrian Brody older or not the actor, but the characters? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think you you have to come to the conclusion that you can infer that, oh, okay, Owen Wilson is the oldest. Part of me thought like, okay, maybe there's like a middle child syndrome thing mm-hmm. going on here where that's the reason why he is like the controlling one who orders for everyone. But in fact, yeah, once once we see, yes, that beautiful reveal that, you know, raise your hand, <clears throat> you'll have this, you'll have that. And not only that, but also let's make an agreement yeah. That all of that is the way that she speaks and deals with them. It's like, oh, okay, I can infer. And it's very clear without being explicitly stated, mm-hmm. you know, who's oldest, who's middle and who's youngest. Even also, even the fact that like she says like tomorrow, I think we should wake up early and spend the mood. Like she makes an itinerary for them. Right. Which she then abandons. Yes. But that makes it all the more clear that even though it seems obnoxious that Owen Wilson keeps doing this thing, like when he has an itinerary, he's there in the morning. Right. So that's my favorite performance and yours. Yes. Um, Do you have a favorite shot or shots that you want to showcase? Yeah. I think my favorite shot, I want to say, I don't want to say that this was hard. It's not that this movie wasn't, beautifully shot or anything like that um but with it feeling so cluttered all of the time yeah um it's harder to it was harder for me to like pick one particularly that like i could just sort of hold in my head and like to think about yeah that's interesting so i have two sort of answers well i have one answer and then i have another sort of answer the first is I love the moment when Jason Schwartzman comes back after he's had some sort of sexual relation with Rita. It's mm-hmm. up to debate how much, actually. Um, he lies down in bed next to Owen Wilson, which you know there's, like, no room for him. Right. But also, by the same token, he's the smallest one. So if anyone could fit on the bed, it would be him. Yeah. 
and Adrian Brody sticks his head down yes, and yes. flicks his glasses up. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite shot. That's my really other, fun framing. It's really fun and it's also funny, but it also speaks to the intimacy of the movie and the, these brothers. Yes. Um, and then the other favorite shot that I have is... Uh, it's like not just a shot. It's like a sort of three shots, hmm. um, which I did take a screenshot of this that you'll be able to see. But it's when the because I really love the New York scene. Mm-hmm. And I would say that that was my favorite scene, except for then we have the Angelica Houston scene. Yes. When they're when she when he's when she's putting them to bed, which yeah. is my favorite. Um, but the New York scene, I really, really love. And I love when. They're, like, screaming at that, like, tow truck operator. Mm. And there's a shot where they, where uh, Jason Schwartzman Schwartzman has just yelled, fuck you. Mm -hmm. And then it's, like, Owen Wilson, Jason, and Adrian Brody in this, like, angled line. But, like, Jason Schwartzman's not wearing a shirt because he had, like, taken off his shirt. Yeah, he was changing. And that shot, like the all their faces in that shot, yes. I think is what makes it for me. Besides the angling and everything, which is very Wes Anderson, right? But that then transitions very quickly to Owen Wilson having his bro- arm around Jason, mm-hmm. and Owen, yeah, Owen having his arm around Jason, and then Adrian standing there, and then it snaps, and they're in the exact same position in India at that little boy's funeral, right? And that those like sort of three shots like right next to each other yeah um i also thought were really stunning and meaningful to me right and also like we're able to both like convey meaning even as like a still yes right yeah absolutely yeah yeah your interest your your perspective is really interesting the the way that you uh uh think about screenshots but not only screenshots but like sort of a a still still image that you can hold in your mind and Mm -hmm. associate with the movie um i i feel like i'm sort of drawn to like camera movement as as a sort of like Mm -hmm. what what makes a shot stand out above the rest so um like i would distinguish my favorite shots from my favorite images in the movie. Mm-hmm. So like on a shot level, the two shots I want to call out are one, it's when they go to the market. And I think if I remember the movie correctly, it's the first stop that the train makes. Yes, it is. Yeah. And Owen Wilson's going to look for a power adapter. Mm-hmm. And then we get this shot that's from pretty far above and it tracks them one by one. Mm-hmm. It goes like, okay, here's Owen Wilson and uh, what he's doing. And there's some dialogue there. And then yeah. pans over and here's Adrian Brody and what he is doing. And there's some dialogue. And then Jason Schwartzman. And it's like, it's from such an a unique perspective and angle. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't, rem- I guess maybe you know, with the boat and the life aquatic, maybe something like this happened, but yeah. like it, 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 or, or, or even, I guess you could say like in Royal Tenenbaums, when, when Eli Cash is sneaking out and Royal and Pagoda catch him, you kind of mm-hmm. get that. But 
it's fr- it's it must be like from a rooftop and the fact that it's not only from that perspective but it goes on quite a long time and so you get to see yeah. so much happen and you're yeah. tracking you know these different um so so that was so interesting for its unique quality to me and then the other thing is um when they go to the airport mm-hmm. and they're and they're each going to make a call yes and and they all three get to make a call and they all three get to say um who's he who's he talking to right yeah 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 um which and they, sc- they're each one is like a little bit betrayed too that they're right. like somehow not part of this phone call on a script level, that's a really fun game, like yeah. as written. It all it reminds me of like you have you have the the fox, the the goose, and the sack of corn that you have yes. to get across the river. Like it's yeah. it's it. Kenny and I reference that riddle all of the time, and yeah. sometimes people know exactly what we're talking about, and sometimes they don't. And when they don't, it's they're so confused as to what we're talking about. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So, so the the scene as written has this game that mm-hmm. they're that they're going to branch off one by one, which mm-hmm. leaves a different pairing of them yes. for us to to be with, uh-huh. and then that is translated onto the screen as a game made even more fun by the fact that it's all done in one take. Yeah. And so yes. it's this one long take where whenever one of them says, who's he talking to? It pans over to the phone and we yeah. see w- the one who's gone away on the phone and then it pans back and the conversation mm-hmm. continues. And the way it does that three times, it just accentuates like the cleverness of the way that this scene is written and the repetition. Yeah. Um, I love that. It works. It works beautifully. Now, compare that to not my favorite shot Mm -hmm. because it has little to do with the camera composition yeah composition it does have to do with the composition but in in a subtler way In, in in a subtler way from a composition perspective my favorite image in the movie is when owen wilson takes his bandages off yeah i wanted to talk about this i think no question in a in a movie with so much interesting and beautiful gorgeous stuff in it yeah that moment is the most arresting image in the movie and the one that's stuck in my brain the most over the years since i first saw it which also the, really says something for wes anderson having shots that are supposed to be we're the mirror right yeah, it all it is almost a little bit like a sequel to the scene that we talked so lovingly about in Royal Tenenbaums with Luke yeah. Wilson. Yes. And and um the the, the I would say f- for me that's no contest the most arresting most memorable image in this movie. Mhm. As I said, I have a soft spot for this movie, having seen it in the theater, having a longer history with it. I would go as far as to say that in in his whole filmography, that is in competition for me with like the most memorable, most arresting images and and scenes in any oh, of wow. these movies. Okay, yeah, is when they're when they're grooming themselves Mm -hmm. and then he takes off the bandages 
and we see how bad it looks underneath. And then the just brief little bit of dialogue that they have afterwards. I want I wanted to talk about that scene too. Um, and what I wanted to talk about, Oh, I have a funny thing. And then the, my meaningful thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the funny thing about the scene, I think is when he does cut off the bandages, there's no reason that he needs to cut off that ace bandage. Uh-huh. <laughs> we can see that it's got the little, you know, sharp ace bandage clips on the one side. We've right. seen it the whole movie. <laughs> so the fact that he cuts it off, I'm sure that they did it on purpose. But every time I see that, I just think, God, you didn't have to do that, man. That's like wasteful. Mm-hmm. Like you didn't have to cut this thing that's supposed to be reused. Yeah, sorry. This is an 11 and a half thing. We're, we're not going <laughs> to see eye to eye on this. <laughs> um. But then the other thing about this is, you know, earlier in the movie, I think actually right before they go to the market, um, Jason Schwartzman says, Schwartzman says to Adrian Brody, um, don't you want to know what he looks like under there? Yeah. And I feel like every time I see this movie, especially the first time, though, of course, I had this sense that maybe he was faking it. Oh, or at least making it seem a lot worse than it was. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, because with with him, the stakes are not as clear as with the other two, mm-hmm. right? Jason, they're all grieving, so that's like the foundation. Jason is in this relationship with this woman that he his ex-girlfriend that he keeps listening to her messages. Right. Um, Adrian Brody's about to have a kid. Owen Wilson's just like, you know, in some way, he's like really pushing that they do this thing and that's sort of his motivation. Yeah. And so when you see him take off, and also, we like we when we were talking about him being the leader, like, I, it always felt like Adrian Brody and Jason Schwartzman were really chummy with one and one, one another in a mm-hmm. way that they weren't with Owen Wilson. Like, yeah. it felt like they had an alliance, right. which would make sense if they were the younger brothers and he was always the leader. Right. And so there's the sense that he's kind of alone, a little bit more alone than they are. Mm-hmm. And so then when he actually takes off his bandages and you see, like, how destroyed he is. Yeah you suddenly realize, like, you you have to believe him at that point, right. I guess is my point. Yeah. And then when he very quietly tells his mother that he got into this accident because he hurt himself. It was a self-harm incident. Right. Suddenly you understand. Now we believe, we have already believed that he was actually hurt. Yes. Which we maybe didn't believe for the whole film until then. Mm-hmm. Now suddenly we understand He's not just trying to bring his brothers together. He's trying to save himself and he's trying to have, you know, he's the in this caretaker role, mm-hmm. but he's really desperately not needing somebody to take care of him. Right. Which is like just de- just so much. Like, I think it's more, it's sort of a longer, I, I talked about how in Rushmore that scene with, Miss Cross and Jason Schwartzman, where she is basically like, you know, do you think I do you think we're gonna fuck each other? Is like sort of takes all of the air out of the room, right? And this movie doesn't have that scene, but I feel like it is slowly 
taking the air out of the room where this is why I was just like crying, I think, for so long in part because you like the you real I feel like the grief somehow becomes more real as the movie goes on instead of becoming lessened as they like Mm -hmm. get through it. Right. Yeah. No, that's yeah, that's yeah, you you're you're bringing a very mature reading of the movie that that uh, yeah, uh, just makes me appreciate it more. Mm-hmm. on that character and story level. Um, we've done favorite performance and favorite shots or images. Um, we always talk about the music. Do you have a favorite song or a favorite needle drop from this movie? Yeah, I think my favorite needle drop is the um, Peter Starstedt. Star, Sarstedt? Do you know how to say his name? No. Song? <laughs> no. Um, the Where Do You Go To My Lovely is, um, yes, this is this is the one which is in the Hotel Chevalier. Is that right? Yes, yeah. it is. And it's he I, I I decided that I would not rewatch the Hotel Chevalier, even though I've seen it before Thank for you. this viewing mm-hmm. to give you some credibility, I guess. But um, <laughs> that, that was that was my preference. Uh, um, but even so, I do want to say that um I think it's quite beautiful how he uses the song in both movies. Yeah. Um, both times he puts it on when there's somebody around that he's romantically or at least physically romantically involved with. Mm-hmm. And the way that he does it, it's so funny because it's so it's so of the times to have that click wheel iPod. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned it. So let me say, I think, uh, look, in general, Yeah. I am not a person who would normally complain about product placement in movies mm-hmm. or television. Yeah. I think that that's just sort of a boring complaint and mm-hmm. I just generally don't mind it. Yeah. However, this is a Wes Anderson movie, which is a little bit more special in, if, uh-huh. in, in terms of the objects that are in it and, right. and the visual coherence. Mm-hmm. I think that the iPod is product placement. Uh-huh. I didn't read anything in the trivia or hear anything in an interview that confirms this, but I bet you dollars to donuts that a deal was written that said for this much money, the iPod makes exactly three appearances in the film uh-huh. and exactly three songs are played using the iPod. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not to mention the fact that w- we invoked it already just a moment ago. The Hotel Chevalier, yeah, was originally distributed to audiences via, via iTunes. iTunes, right? It yes. was a fr- it was a free download on iTunes, and that was how mm-hmm. you watched it. So yes. I think all of that is just not a coincidence. <laughs> um, I think that this movie was partially funded by Apple. And uh, I think that that might be some of the explanation for how Wes Anderson was able to make a movie in India on a moving train, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that he should kind of sort of be in movie jail, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. after the failure of The Life Aquatic. So I want to say that if you had said this to me in 2008... I might be 
like very, very on board with you. Mm. And I don't disagree with what you're saying. Mm -hmm. But because it's not 2008, it's 2020. Yeah. I don't mind this because the click wheel iPod feels very nostalgic to me. Sure. But not just nostalgic to me like as an object, but as like the ability to carry music with you. Yes. And all of your music with you in a way that I actually can't do right now. Yeah. Because I have an iPod and it's not big enough to hold all the music I own. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And people are like, you have it. Like people were like, why don't you just use your phone or why don't you just stream? Well, because not all the things I have are available on streaming platforms. Sure. And I liked the idea at the time and now. It almost felt like a Mary Poppins bag. Yes. I can fit everything in. And so I think it doesn't bother me because I feel like out of all the characters, Jack would be the one specifically. Yes. Who would be like, it's very important to me that I have access to 100% of the songs that mm-hmm. I have curated to be important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're you're totally right. I think... I think I think it's product placement and I think that it is done as gracefully as it could be done. Mm-hmm. However, I feel that still at maximum grace it it is it is uh not welcome to 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 and me to me it it's it's just it just sort of screams to me like this is here because of a business opportunity. Like this is mm-hmm. this is not how it would have been done in a vacuum. Well, but I think we all know that there was not room for a record player, which is what Wes Anderson would have preferred on that train. Of course, yes. But <laughs> but anyway, you you're you're right. Certainly, in hindsight, thirteen years later, the click wheel iPad iPod is is uh, is quaint. Yes. Um, but. At the time, it w- it was not. My favorite needle drop in the movie is um, "Play with Fire" by the Rolling Stones. Yeah, uh, and uh, that is sort of like the crescendo of of the movie. And I and talk about you know camera movement. Uh, another great shot um, for on so many you know, on every level is when that song is playing and, and Angelica Houston has just said, you know, I don't remember exactly how she said it, says it, but she says, why don't we try communicating with each other without words? Yeah. And then it's the close up tracking shot. And I mean, the four of them are amazing. Just their face, mm-hmm. facial expressions alone. The song scoring it just elevates it you know, so much. Uh, and uh, not only that, but also the fact that they, you are so tight in on their faces, mm-hmm. but just from the amount of time that it takes to get from face to face, yeah, you can tell the positions that they're in. And mm-hmm. you can tell that they are not sitting in a circle at like the four points of a square. Like yeah, you can that tell that the brothers shot. are closer together yes. and that she is sort of like on the other end. Yeah. And, and the fact that it does a full rotation so that it starts and ends with Angelica Houston. Yes. And then 
and then the only thing that could possibly top that mm-hmm. is the very thing that comes next and tops it, which is the tracking shot through the fake train. Which is just, I mean, this is what I want to talk about, like where all of these people are in their own compartments yes. and they're all very narrow. Right. I was thinking about this too, specifically, you and I have had a lot of off-air mic conversations about... um that thing I can't remember the name of that you have a post-it note on your monitor. <laughs> oh, the four agreements? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And the one that you always bring up to me, could you tell, could you say what it is? I, I, I Is it don't take it personally? Yeah. And I, I feel like when I was watching that tracking shot, I was thinking of that specifically because it feels like all of these people that have interacted with one another and sort of sometimes disrespected or used one another it's like you can't really take it personally because here you can see them all in their own in their own tiny worlds like and they're not really able to get out of them yeah so you it, you know you see rita and rita's clearly was dating um the chief, the chief steward. steward yeah and then you see the chief steward with that snake, which mm-hmm. is a funny thing. Yeah. But you also know that she wanted to break up with him at least. Um, and then you see, yeah, you see Natalie Portman again for some reason that mm-hmm. we can't possibly know what, why. Um, well, that's not fair, though. <laughs> no, that's not fair because she's wearing a Hotel Chevalier robe and he's been wearing a Hotel Chevalier robe. And the, and the, perfu- the perfume is on her nightstand. Yes, and the perfume is on her nightstand. Which we yes. know is her perfume. Yes. Um, Even if we've never seen the short. Yeah. Um, we get Bill Murray as the businessman. We get Bill Murray. We get Brendan, uh, who is on a on plane. On a plane. Yeah. Uh, do we get, is Kumar there too? Kumar's there too, yeah. yeah. He's praying. Kumar is there, and uh, and of course, it ends in... The stop motion tiger. Mm-hmm. This I had to get more stop motion. <laughs> I love, I love, I love it. I love that it just has this one isolated incident yeah. of the stop motion animation for an animal, and and to me it is um, so like there to me there is like a one to one comparison between this fake train set mm-hmm. and the cross section of of the Belafonte. Yeah. Right. They're they're both physically impossible. Like they are both just visual metaphor mm-hmm. for for something that is being described. Yeah. In in non literal terms. Yes. And I I wish I could like force this out of my brain, but I mm-hmm. but to some extent I'm still holding on to this like rules-based way of thinking that I talked about in the Edgar Wright episode, which was the reason why when I first saw Shaun of the Dead, I was in high school. I was not ready for it. I didn't like it. I was like, what is this movie? It's not a comedy. He has to kill his mom. That's really sad. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the, I mentioned the, when I was talking about Artifice last week, I mentioned how there's at least one scene where they are moving through what is visibly the giant cross section when they're supposed to be on the boat. Yeah. Um, I don't, I'm, 
I'm not coming out against that and saying you can't do that. Yeah. However, I would like to say that this moment in the Darjeeling Limited is to me the successful version of that. Of that, yeah. It's, it's, saying, the, yeah. it's the version where it's like, okay, this makes sense to me. Yeah, because it's we it's it's visual metaphor. It's it's a framing device, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and at no point does the movie expect me to think like, oh, this is literally actual characters yeah. are actually physically moving through this space. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, that's like what that that to me is like what the cross section should have been. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you could make the case that there's a version of the life aquatic where the ambiguity of the artifice seems intentional and you're supposed to wonder, did what I saw really happen or did it happen a different way? And in that version of the movie, you could make the case that it's a very strong choice that the characters literally move through the cross section when they're supposed to be aboard the boat. Yeah, um, yeah. But but what we got was sort of in the middle, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It was it's neither nor, right? Mm-hmm. What else? So I, I, there's one major thing that we have to talk about before we're done. In my in my opinion, what, do do you have anything um, you want to? I mean, is race the thing? Yes, that we have to talk the, about? what we have. Okay, what yes. we have to talk about is the extent to which it is uh, necessary to problematize the movie. Yeah. Which thanks to, um, thanks to you we've done uh every time and I, and and I do thank you for that. You always bring it back to race. I the one thing I, I have two sort of small notes that I wanted to bring up. Three small notes. The first is um Brendan's character feels sort of reminiscent to me of the Bond Company stooge. Yes. Um in the way that he delivers lines and in the fact that he's just sort of so disrespected and disrespected that he's like um that i think that that's very funny and i think it's really well done it's a funny Um, type of character yes i wanted to bring this up because i feel like i need to bring it up every time it happens at one point um owen wilson says to them do you trust me Mm -hmm. and then he repeats it and he says do you trust me right and i said when kenny and i started dating i said to him when i say to you do you trust me and then pause and say, do you trust me? Do you think of Aladdin <laughs> or Titanic? And do you know what he said? The Darjeeling Limited? Casper. <laughs> he was like, I think of Casper. And so I think that the reason I bring this up is because I don't think it's as strong a moment in the Darjeeling Limited. But like mm-hmm. that line of asking not once, but twice, if somebody trusts somebody, yeah. comes up in these three movies. That's funny. <laughs> and so now to see it come up in the Darjeeling Limited in the same way, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to bring that up. That's funny. Um, I never would have made that connection myself. I do want to <laughs> okay. say that I think that that moment is set up for, that's what makes it poignant and meaningful when at almost the very end of the movie, Adrian Brody and Jason Schwartzman tell Owen Wilson to hold on to their passports. And yes. that to me is just a very neat, clever, not laying it on too thick sort of way 
of showing where these characters have ended up and how they have grown. Yeah. Well, and also I feel like that moment is a good way for them to acknowledge that Owen Wilson has been their caretaker. Right. So not just to show that they trust him, but also to say in the past, Mm -hmm. we should have trusted you. Right. Um, And then I also wanted to bring up this because I feel like in a lot of Wes Anderson movies, somebody will ask if somebody else is upset or something like that, thinking they're feeling a genuine emotion. Yeah. And the answer is that they're not feeling a genuine emotion. They're having a physical reaction to a physical stimulant Mm -hmm. of some sort. And so in this movie, I thought there was a nice little twist where when they get kicked off of the train, uh, Peter's talking to, or uh, Jack is talking to Rita. Yeah. And he says, did you get maced too? Yes. And she says, no, I'm crying. (laughs) It's a funny inversion. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. By the way, when they get kicked off the train and then the shot where the train is pulling away and they're and they throw rocks at it and chase after it. I love that part. It's so funny. It's so funny. And it's and it's gorgeous (laughs) to look at. Um and also, just by the way, I just want to mention, I think that this movie on a script level, it's it's funny that Wes Anderson has different collaborators than mm-hmm. he did on the first three. Uh, but he is collaborating with Jason Schwartzman, who he collaborated with as an actor in Rushmore. Mm-hmm. By the way, there's 10 years separating those movies. For us, it's yeah. been three weeks because there's only yeah. two movies in between Rushmore and this. Yeah. But it's like, okay, they, it's, uh, uh, um, it's he's, a, he's an adult now. He's not right, a child right, anymore. Exactly. Um, and uh, uh, so, so they collaborated, but not as writers before. But, mm-hmm. but um, the reason I bring this up is because they get kicked off the Darjeeling Limited, which mm-hmm. is the name of the movie. <laughs> and then there's a lot more movie left to go. Yes. And they never get back to the Darjeeling Limited. And that's yes. okay. That's just, that's yes. the way it is. That's exactly the same as Rushmore. Oh, Rushmore right. is the yeah. name of the movie. He yeah. gets kicked out of Rushmore. There's a lot more story left to tell. Yeah. And he never gets back to Rushmore. Yeah, that's, that's o- true. That's okay, too. That's, that's yeah. just, <laughs> I just thought that was a funny point. <laughs> that is a really good funny parallel. And a very Wes Anderson thing is right. to abandon ship. Right. Can I... Okay, so here's my thought on the race. And I don't want to say that I'm tired of talking about this in the sense that, like, I'm a white person. I need to constantly be interrogating this. Mm-hmm. And so that's not what I mean when I'm saying I'm tired. Um, I feel like what I've... You know, even though this is the sort of most, like, white people in a racialized... Like, like it's, like, way more racially diverse than just white people in texas right um you know every single background character almost is not a white person right um but i feel like we really summed it up i feel like a lot of the things we've been saying are happening here in the exact same ways um it's very touristy he knows that it's touristy he does and I think the the question that it happens is, can you basically, can you make a joke about these white characters being insensitive without 
it also somehow basically still harming the people of color, mm-hmm. which is what we were talking about with um, we were in in Royal Tenenbaums. We were like, can he do this without it still being at the expense, like with Owen Wilson's character of right. Native American and Indigenous people? Right. And I I think the answer is he does it better in this movie. Yes. But like the fact that they are just taking all of these drugs, like we haven't talked about their drug use. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> they're like constantly taking drugs and it's not even like something that is like kind of in the background though it is like there is a scene like that scene where they're having dinner they all are just like talking about the different drugs and they're talking about them as if like well it's india nothing's regulated here and then later you have the chief steward saying do you have a prescription for this basically saying no i almost died things are regulated here yeah like things are regulated in india this isn't some like you know exotic wild west where there's no regulation and you can just buy snakes like you just were going to shitty parts of like where you can get Mm -hmm. which exist everywhere Right, right right um and so it's like Again, I feel like he's trying to balance. He's like cre- he's taking a stereotype, showing that white people are exploiting it, but then trying to balance it. And I don't think it like destroys the movie for me because yeah. again, I was like very emotionally moved by this movie. Right. Um, but and I think that he does a better job of it here. I think that he's more respectful here. Yes. But some of the things, I feel like he just missteps. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Okay, I have, I have a I have a s- several ways of talking about this in mind that I, I okay. will try to go through them one by one in a coherent, yeah. meaningful way. Mm-hmm. The first is that um, uh, uh, it, it's similar to the way that I talked about Eli Cash and and how mm-hmm. he's a, a farce and and yes. we're supposed to laugh at him and and understand that it, it, his his way of thinking is is backwards. Yes. Um, all three of the main characters, like so many of Wes Anderson's characters across different movies, they they are ridiculous. They are yes. buffoons. They do stupid things. Mm-hmm. No, no better example than they go to the market and somebody's selling a snake and, and says, it's deadly yeah. poisonous. And Adrian yeah. says, how much? Yes. <laughs> and just for no discernible reason buys a deadly poisonous snake and brings it onto yes. the train. Um, that's something that only like a fool would do. Yes. So they are they are fools. However, yes. what's interesting is that they are simultaneously the main characters and sympathetic. And what we're mm-hmm. used to from a comedy and storytelling perspective is that like there's a fool like in contrast to the straight man. Right. Yes. And and basically in Wes Anderson's worlds, like as long as you are a character with dialogue and anything to do, then you have your sort of neurosis, you have your phobia, mm-hmm. you have your personality that makes you think backwards and do ridiculous things. And yes. there's no one in a position of authority to to correct them or to even point out how how absurd they are. Yeah, unless they start trying to point it out to each other and which always backfires. Right. Yeah. So so on the one hand so the first 
thing on my list is like, okay, they we understand they're stupid. Yeah. Um, and so that that sort of gives you the the kind of like, okay, if they do they do something stupid, then you know, we understand that the the writer is not endorsing mm-hmm. what they're doing. Yes. They're it, they're framing it as ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um the next thing is the Taurus thing, which is uh uh important because uh not only because it's true of this movie, but because in one of the interviews I watched, um Wes Anderson, I don't remember exactly what he was asked or the point that he was making. I just remember like a a, a clause in what he was saying mm-hmm. was uh basically to say because we were tourists and that's all we can ever be mm-hmm. so yeah, for sure so he clearly ex- he has the understanding that like he is a tourist mm-hmm. and this is a movie about tourists mm-hmm. and that is a limitation on the type of story he can tell and the type of movie he can make. Mm -hmm. So you can't really make the case that he, you know, has so much of an ego that, you know, he's the like intrepid explorer who, Mm -hmm. who, you know, you know, thinks that he can co-modify, you know, another country and another culture into his, his product. Um, the, 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 the case that that can be made is kind of a more abstract case that has less to do with the execution of the movie and more to do with just the underlying premise of the movie. And that is the case that like, maybe we, we've had our fill as a culture of, of tourist narratives yeah um and and maybe we need less of that and we need more of you know the sort of explicitly like decolonizing you know sort of narratives and and um narratives from uh you know brought to us by you know people of color and people from other countries and cultures the last thing I want to say about this is about basically what this movie is about. And it's basically like the Eli Cash char- character, you know, on a grand scale, like applied to like the whole movie, which is in, in my reading of this movie, one of the primary things that it is about is it is about the folly of Eat, Pray, Love. Mm-hmm. It's a it's it's about the folly of going to a foreign land with an agenda. Yeah, for sure. To yeah. find yourself there. Mm-hmm. Um, that that the 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 sort of comedy premise is that that's what they're there to do, and that is misguided. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, what ends up happening to them is they do go on a journey, but they go on the journey that 
the the train literally it doesn't the train doesn't literally go off the rails that's what i was about to say the train literally goes on the wrong rails right mm -hmm. the train gets lost um and they 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 go on the sort of journey that one arguably should go on if they are going to travel in this way mm -hmm. the the journey where they they don't have an agenda. They just give themselves over to uh, the this the setting, mm -hmm. and and it's discovery. It it's it's true discovery, rather than than you know planned, you know a false discovery. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think there's also something else to be said, and I, again, I I agree with what you're saying, and I and I think that I also said when I want to say too, but that, I, I mean, I feel like this movie is really about them trying to figure out their grief and also figure out if they truly can, I don't want to say like go home, but I think like go home. Mm -hmm. I think go home to their mom. Right. And so not only is it a farce that you should eat, pray, love or whatever. Right. It's a farce. Because really the whole time they're trying um uh Francis is trying to get them to their mom. Right. Who he's found. They don't know where she is. Right. You know, he has these things planned and maybe that's what he wants to do yeah. to feel better. But really what he wants to do is he wants to get to his mom the whole time. Yeah. I you're right. And that kind of sorta undercuts my reading, which is why I don't, I know I don't think it does. I think it strengthens it. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I I I was saying that it undercuts because it sort of imposes a a reason why they are in this place that has little to do with the place itself and mm -hmm. and what what a white person would think about, you know, what they will experience going to India having never been there. Yeah. Um, and the assumptions that and the biases that the, that they carry. Um, you could say that, oh, they they just they actually go there because their mom is there and the whole spiritual journey thing is kind of a facade. Um, yeah. And and I would say that I think that may be literally what's going on on the plot level. But from like a writing level, I think it's sort of inverted. I, no, my my point is that because because two of the brothers don't know that right. So my point is that I think it strengthens your argument because it's like a farce, both in terms of how genuine that experience can be, and then it become the the two of the characters realize that it is in fact a farce, a facade, a facade because it is literally mm. not why and plotline wise right why their brother brought them there i see okay gotcha yeah that that makes sense i follow you um i was thinking of it in terms of well if i'm saying this is a movie about the folly of going to an exotic foreign country for a spiritual self-discovery journey yeah then what do you do with the fact that that's not actually the character's intention 
Um, but it, but I think it is the character's intention, just not Owen Wilson's. Uh, right. Yeah. I I think I think that that I think that that is the intention from a writing perspective, mm-hmm. and that for plot reasons, they had to write in the sort of convenience of this is where Angelica Houston ended up and that's their actual destination. I will say too, if we're talking about spiritual journeys, that in some ways this sort of like facade of a spiritual journey also applies to Angelica Houston's character. Right. Because it's not like they leave the sort of religiousness of this journey when they get to her. Right. She's a nun or whatever. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I think that the other thing that is sort of being played with here, but not uh, it, it it's not falling into the trap. It's sort of subverting the trap is is the white savior narrative. Yes. And yeah. and in my reading of it, I think that the movie is kind of making fun of Angelica Houston's character mm-hmm. for what she's doing there. Like I, I think we're supposed to understand she's she's doing something selfish and she's not really doing good, you know, be being a nun in this environment. Um, yeah, I think that they're absolutely making fun of her because something else that I wanted to bring up that I didn't get a chance to was that she says these people need me and they say, but, but we need you, basically. Right. They say, but what about us is what yeah, they say. Yeah. Um, but it's part of what makes her character so, like, devastating to the her children. Right. Is that, oh, she abandons the people that she's there to help all the time, too. Right. They say, they say, it's not just that she leaves that morning and leaves them breakfast or whatever. Right. Um, we get the note that she does this occasionally right. where she just leaves She for goes a few away days. sometimes, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, no one, she's like a ghost. No one can really hold, hold her down, right. quote unquote. Right. Um, but also, it's like, I guess it in some ways it's comforting, I think, for them in the sense that, you know, it's not like these people won out over us. Right. It's that nobody ever will win. Yes. So Angelica Houston, because she's a nun in India and she's from America, she she has the potential to fall into the white savior trap. But what's actually happening is that she appears to be somebody who is using that narrative to her advantage. Um, but the movie doesn't present her to us that way. And then also the three of them are, you know, have the potential to fall into the trap and be white saviors. And and of course, there are the three children in peril, yeah. and two out of the three of them save them. And so there's kind of like a simultaneous, like okay, literally they are white and they save a couple of lives, but also at the same time, they don't do a 100% job of it. That one of them fails. Yeah. Um. And so it becomes really just a narrative about like. Well, they're grieving their father, and so they enter into this situation where they become engrossed in the grieving, grieving process brother. of yes, of of uh, other people, 
uh, of another of another country and another culture. And so, yeah, there's sort of a funny kind of dancing, like tiptoeing over mm-hmm. the 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 white savior uh, uh, booby trap. Um, and by the way, one of the perhaps the best line in the movie is when um, Adrian Brody is holding the boy's body, and yes, after he says he's dead, he's dead. He says, "I didn't save mine." Yeah, and it's like. <laughs> I think that's when I, I think that's probably the moment I started crying right. and then I just didn't stop. Right. Um, yeah. And I feel like that, that too is part of like that deadpan of he's dead. He's dead. I didn't save mine. Yeah. I feel like, and nobody could have delivered it the way Adrian Brody did. Absolutely. Um, and I also like, I've read some criticism and I think it's in that first article that I posted about race about that scene. And I, I don't know how to feel about, about it in the sense that I don't think that that boy has to die for them to have spiritual growth. Mm-hmm. I think all that does is hurt them more. Yeah. Um, but also I, I don't think that, yeah, I don't think that it's like a sacrifice. Yeah. Of, of, a of a, of a, you know, you know young boy of color so that, so that you know their journey can be fulfilled or something. I think yes. it's, it's it's treated. It, I think it's treated more uh, sensitively than than. That. I think so too. Yeah. Um, but I do. I do feel I'm not sure how they could have done this. So I feel like maybe this isn't really a criticism. <laughs> but I feel like it's maybe not fully addressed how fucked up it is that this kid has died in this village. I think it's so traumatic that I think that they couldn't actually address it properly without it being a different movie. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, it's still, it's not, it's just so, it's so much. It's so traumatic. Yeah. I think where the movie maybe perhaps in my opinion falls a little bit short and i mm-hmm. and i this is not a deal breaker for me it's just a little bit of room for improvement in my opinion mm-hmm. is um the funeral yeah. i like the moment when they're on the bus and mm-hmm. i like the moment where he says we're invited to the funeral and they get mm-hmm. off the bus yeah but then that cuts to the slow motion tracking shot. Yes. And the funeral is them walking through it in slow motion. Mm-hmm. And then they get into the vehicle, which then cuts to from the shot of the three of them to the flashback, right? They're in mm-hmm. the back of the limo and it's a year ago. Yeah. The slow motion and that transition sort of it feels a little bit superficial and it feels a little Mm -hmm. bit like this is just a launching pad for another part of their story. Yeah. Uh, Rather than treating it with the sensitivity um, and uh, that, that it, and the, and the focus Mm -hmm. that it, that it deserves. That's just one part of the larger part of the movie, which is about the village and the child. 
I also think that it's worth mentioning that the father there is an actor who's been in a bunch of stuff that I know you've seen. Super famous. Yeah. Yeah. Or his name's Irf. I'm probably going to say it wrong. His name's, uh, hers, his acting name anyway is Irfan Khan. Yeah. And he's been in things like The Amazing Spider-Man, Slumdog Millionaire, Life of Pi, Jurassic World from 2015. Yeah. Um, you know, he's incredibly... Super famous, uh, international, successful movie star guy. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. So, like, he's, like, the kind of person that his filmography gets its own page right. on Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Because it's so long. Yeah. Um, and so I also feel... I'm not... I think that his acting is really great there. And I feel like, like, especially that moment where he just blacks out. Yeah. Um, in the water. Mm-hmm. But I feel like something I'm going to talk about a lot with Isle of Dogs, so I won't talk about it too much here, is that having these characters not have their own voice is part of the touristy problem that I have with this Mm -hmm. because we're in this construction where we could give them at least a voice that the audience can hear. Yeah. And the fact that this guy doesn't get any – this very famous, well-known actor. All of his acting is in – either silent or in a language that we as English speakers don't have access to. And then that the characters don't have access to also feels like a missed opportunity right. to me. Well, yes, I think you're absolutely right. I just also want to plant a seed uh, piggybacking off of that, that yeah. eventually uh, if I remember what I intend to do, we're, we're, <laughs> we're going to talk about casting as like a shortcut. As, as mm-hmm. a sort of like, okay, um, we have no time to establish the audience's relationship with this character who is has yeah. such a small part. Therefore, we need to cast someone in particular who just the fact that it's that actor is going to do the work for us. For us. And yeah. it's a shortcut. And I think this is an example of that. I think that, that, makes I sense, think that yeah. they needed, you know, in, in order to write it the way I think that it's written the way that it's written because Wes Anderson mm-hmm. and his collaborators in the, on the script have the understanding that they need to maintain a, the tourist's perspective because yeah. anything else would be presumptuous. Yes. And therefore they can't, you know, they don't speak the language. They can't communicate. Therefore there's not mm-hmm. much of a speaking role for the people in the village and various other Indian people. Is that is that the best type of movie? No, of course, of course not. <laughs> but it's the, but it's it's the box that this movie is in yeah. because of who's making it and because the people yes. making it are self-aware in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, to conclude, um, and yes. you, you can add in anything else you want to as well. But I just yeah, I have a couple final uh, cross podcast ep- uh, notes. Great. So just real quick um, from the flashback. Yes. Um, I just wanted to mention this one little detail because I think it is a nice compliment to another detail that we spent some time yeah. on in a previous episode. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, first, tangentially related to this, the name the Darjeeling Limited. According yeah. to IMDb trivia, that's the name of a T. Yes. And and it's called Darjeeling Limited. And to name a train after that is kind of a pun, right? Because yes. The blank limited. That's like a train line. 
Mm-hmm. That's that's fun with naming. Yes. In a similar way, uh, when we talked about the Royal Tannenbaums, we talked about the Gypsy Cab Company. Right. Um, yeah. And how that's we recognize that that is uncomfortable because now we recognize the gypsy as a slur. But yeah. it was like a pun when that's how that's what he meant it to be because a gypsy cab mm-hmm. is it an illegal cab and this is the gypsy cab company. Yeah. Um, there's a detail in this movie which I like to think of as being sort of like the other side of that coin. Yeah. Did you notice what the what the auto shop is called? It's called no. What is it? It's called? also the name of the story that Jason Schwartzman writes about that event in their lives. Uh-huh. So you see it. At the top of the page. The page. It's called Luftwaffe Automotive. Oh, yeah. Do you know what the Luftwaffe is? Um, I should because I took German. Tell me. It was Hitler's Air Force. Jesus. <laughs> so that to me is is just goes hand in hand with Gypsy Cab Company as like yeah. that that name is 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 a little wink wink did you notice we put a joke in here yeah like because no way would it ever be called that in real life yeah i do i do want to make one small note that um darjeeling 2 is a place Mm -hmm. um so do have a have a train called the darjeeling limited would just indicate to me that it goes to or through Darjeeling. Right, that that's so one yes, of the terminal stops perhaps, yeah. Yeah, so that's like it's that de- so the Darjeeling limited thing is definitely a pun in the way that you're describing. Right. But it's also realistic. Um, realistic. Right. Yes, I don't think it's, it's like It's possible. Ju- it's possible and it's not jokey. Like there there have been train lines with Darjeeling in the name, I guess is my sure. point. I don't I'm not adding anything to the caper count. Yeah, I I I don't think I don't think there's any dead dogs and I don't think that there's, there's any no dead dogs. caper. I mean you could I mean if you really wanted to stretch it you could maybe make the case that like the flashback the tr- the trying to get the car yeah is a bit of a caper because they're ba- they're they're basically they're almost stealing it. <laughs> yes. Yes. And the um the scene with the snake almost becomes a caper. Yeah. But then it just is he catches it and it's over. Right. Um so I'm going to keep the caper count where it was. Fair enough. Um dead dog counts at 1 Stays still. At one. Um and now I'm going to I think I'm going to rank them. Yeah, I I'm curious to hear your ranking. So number one is The Life Aquatic. No surprise there. That will not change. There's no surprise knowing you. Yes. In general, <laughs> no. there is surprise there. But but yes. knowing what I know about you. For me, there's no surprise. I think that this ranks above Tenenbaums for me. This is number two? I think this is, it's this, Tenenbaums. I think it's, I think it's Life Aquatic. Darjeeling Limited, Tenenbaums, Rushmore, Bottle Rocket for me right now. Yeah, that's really interesting. and Which I was surprised by, but when I watched it again today, maybe I'll change my mind when I'm less tired, yeah. but at least for this podcast recording, I'm keeping. I'm really glad to hear that you like the movie as much as you do, um, because I feel like this is, The Life Aquatic and The Darjeeling Limited are kind of hand-in-hand, hand, sort of the low point in mm-hmm. his career. 
Uh, of course, but of course, I like the weird ones. You sure, know? yeah. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I, I have a great appreciation for this movie. For me, it, it it's, it's, it's going to be a photo finish. Basically, mm-hmm. I, my, my feelings are so strong for this movie and for Rushmore and for Royal Tenenbaums. It's, mm-hmm. it's uh, gonna, it, 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 it could change from, from day to day. Uh, the one thing, the one thing I'll say before we go is that I think I've sort of mentioned this in a different way before, but I think the Royal Tenenbaums is sort of like an encyclopedia for me. Hmm. It's not that I don't like that movie because I do like that movie, but when I think about that movie, I think about it as like a, like a playbook. But I would never not make a sports analogy for the most part in Wes Anderson. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like an encyclopedia. It's like that book on Jacques Cousteau that shows up in Rushmore. Like, like yeah, like an almanac. It's there. It's there to show me how to read the rest of the movies. That's interesting. Well, talking about you know things being different, mm-hmm. and the outliers. Yep. Next week we'll talk about Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh, cool! I couldn't remember what was next. Yeah, animation. <laughs> And that actually works out really great because I can watch that with Elliot this week. Nice. Okay, I'll see you next week. Will love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye. Will is on Twitter and Letterboxd at youngest of one, and his website is williamhoffacker.com. You can find Liz at exclamate on Instagram, at exclamate underscore on Twitter, or on her website, elizabethdeannamorrislakes.com. Our website is smugbuds.com and the podcast is at smugbuds on Twitter and Instagram. 